Well, good morning, Mercy House. I'd like to take this time to invite anyone who is in elementary school to follow Mr. Charlie down here for Sunday school. It's like the Pied Piper over here, Charlie. <laughs> Well, my name is Dan Moylan. I'm very um, happy to be here with you this morning. And our lead pastor, Robert, as you know, is uh, on sabbatical, and today's Mother's Day, but he's returning actually up, up here to, to preach on Father's Day. So June 16th, um, he'll, be, he'll be back up here preaching the truth. And actually, there is a little, now that Owen's out of here, there's a little story I wanted to share with you this morning about Mother's Day. So we woke up early. Um, to kind of, we decorate the kitchen for holidays in our family, and so we decorated for Mother's Day. And then we started our uh, plans for dinner, which is going to be barbecue short ribs, slow cooked. So we had to start that at like 6 in the morning. And so I'm in the kitchen, and I'm hacking up a full rack of ribs with a butcher on the countertop. And Owen's very interested in what's going on, and he's asking questions and talking about how we're going to season it and how long it takes, and he helped me count back for the time. And then it got quiet for a minute as we're working, and he said, very sincerely and matter-of-factly, Dad, are these human ribs? <clears throat> and my response was, and Sarah was out at that moment, and she said, I'm glad they're not human ribs. And he said, yeah, you know, we wouldn't want to get caught. <laughs> said, so pray for the Moylans. Um, I'm not sure what's happening <clears throat> down there. But um, this is... <laughs> Don't tell him I told you that either. Uh, but this is a really special time for our church. Um, it's sad to see students go, but there's something about changing to one service for, for just for a season that actually I kind of enjoy. It's everyone's in one room together uh, for one service, and you see people who you might not have seen at second services, and it's just a time to kind of pull together, regroup, relax, hear from God, and, uh, and feel a little bit more connected with those of us who have kind of more, more long-term type roots here in Amherst. And so I, I really do enjoy these, um, this, this season for a part of, of, of our church. Um, it's also special because it's Mother's Day, and uh, we've all mentioned that a, a couple of times, but there really is kind of a beautiful relationship between mom and baby where the, the nurturing comfort and delight that a parent has for, for a child is really modeled for the first time uh, for those kids. And so it, it's, it's special for that that reason as well. It's also a special Sunday because we're starting our new sermon series for the summer, which is called Brief. And this sermon series is going to be looking at four books in the New Testament that are pretty short. They're only about one chapter. Uh, so we'll be looking at 2 John today, and for the next four weeks we'll be in 2 John. Um, we're going to look at 3 John, Jude, and uh, Philemon. So those are the four books we'll be looking at. And as we study these four books through the sermon series Brief, um, I'd encourage you to do two things. One is to look at, at the books that we're studying as um, a letter from a friend to a friend. And these letters are written by the Apostle John and Paul and Jude, um, all who have firsthand experience with living and walking with Jesus, the person of Jesus. And they, they had really an actual physical friendship and relationship with him. And they also have friendships and relationships with other people um, in the churches that they help plant and minister to. And so these short books are kind of short, targeted messages from a mature Christian friend to other Christian friends. And so it's helpful to view it in that, in that respect. 
And we can learn about what relationship and Christian friendship is supposed to look like through studying these short books. I'd also encourage you to just practice the skill of reading out loud, reading your Bible out loud. So sometimes when we, if we're going to do a whole long sermon series on a pretty intense and heavy book, like we've done Romans and things like that, it can kind of seem overwhelming for someone, especially if you're not used to that rhythm of studying the Bible at that point. This is a great, this is going to be a great season to practice um, the skill and the discipline of, of reading your Bible and reading it out loud. So we, um, Sumta read the, the whole entire, that 1 through 13 is the whole entire book of 2 John. You've already read that whole book once. It just happened. Um, and so the method that I do when I read these short books or I'm, I'm studying a short text is I read the whole thing out loud once, and then I go back to the top, and I read out loud up to whatever verses we're studying, and then you ask questions, uh, you journal, the same way you would, you would study any scripture, and then when you're done, you go back and you read the whole thing out loud again. And it sounds like a lot, but it's not because the books are so short. So you read it, and then you read it, and then you read it. I call it the read, read, read method. It's going to be huge. Um, so those are the two things that I encourage you to do. Think of these, uh, these little chapters as a book from a friend to a friend, and then also think of it as a way to, to exercise the discipline of, of reading your Bible and reading it out loud. Okay? Um, so I'm going to start us off here in Second John. I'm going to pray real quickly before, um, before uh, we begin. And so I ask you to join me in that in prayer. Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for the truth that you provide to us. We thank you for uh, the Apostle John and... Um, just the Holy Spirit's guidance in helping him to write this letter to his friends um, and teaching us about truth along the way. And so I pray that your spirit would be here, your spirit would kind of guide this truth to our hearts in the way that you know we need. Um, and I pray for this church, Lord. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, um, so we, we've read all of John out loud. We've, we've heard that already. And so what's the second step in the read, read, read process? It is read from the start just to where we're, we're going. And that's actually, we're in verses 1 through 3 today, so that's going to serve as the purpose of, of what we're looking at. Um, and that's actually just one sentence. It's three verses, but it's one sentence. So I'm going to read that again for you. Just verses 1 through 3. One sentence. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. Okay, so this is a letter from John to the elect lady, which we're going to um, kind of unpack a little bit. So the, the elder that is, is being referenced is John, and basically that just means that he's an older, respected, mature uh, person in, in the church. And this, this John is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. It is the same John who was called from a life of fishing, and he was a son, one of the sons of Zebedee, um, to become one of the first disciples of Jesus. Now, if you are familiar with John's story, he, he's got a really interesting and intimate friendship with Jesus Christ. As a disciple, he witnessed the godliness of Jesus in first hand. So he saw Jesus raise Jairus's daughter from the dead. He was witness to that. Um, Jesus asked him to, to go pray on a mountain with him, and he noticed, he, he witnessed Jesus's transfiguration where his godliness and holiness was, was physically seen. Um, Peter and James were with him at that point. And he also witnessed Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus while they're on that mountain. Uh, and he heard God call Jesus his son. 
So he witnessed the godliness of Jesus in just kind of his everyday interactions with who Jesus was. He was also corrected by Jesus a couple times. Um, and, you know, John and James are, are walking with Jesus. They enter a Samaritan town, and they ask them to, to put up Jesus, basically take care of him for a few days, and the town denies Jesus' entrance, basically. And so John very bravely offers to Jesus to pray that fire from heaven would come down and destroy the town. And Jesus said, calm down. You don't need to do that. He was corrected another time, which is written in Luke, where um, uh, John walks by and he sees some non-leaders in the church, but Christians, uh, trying to cast out demons in other men and women in the name of Jesus. And he told them to stop doing that. They did not have the authority to do that. Um, and he went and told Jesus, hey, listen, just so you know, we saw these Christians trying to cast out demons in your name, and we told them not to do it. And Jesus said, why did you tell them not to do it? They're obviously on our side. Let them do it. Uh, and so this, this witnessing of Jesus' godliness, this correction by Jesus Christ on, um, on what is appropriate within, for a Christian to do or, or act or pray for, um, impacted John's life. John also was, is the only one of the disciples to actually stay at the feet of Jesus when he was hanging on the cross with the women that were caring for him there. Um, and during that time, that really difficult time for Jesus, um, Jesus kind of bequeathed his mom onto John and said, she is now your mother, you are now her son. And so we can see that special relationship between the two of them. He's actually referred to as uh, the disciple that Jesus loved many times. He was the longest living apostle, um, and he experienced the godliness of Jesus in a very real and tangible way. And he experienced uh, the correction and familiarity and friendship with Jesus in a way that is true and familiar. And that changed his life. That defined who he was. It informed his, his career choices um, and his life trajectory. John was a pastor, a teacher, a missionary who traveled to share the good news and the truth of who Jesus was and what that means for us. It's the, that the truth is the gospel that Jesus presents. And also the truth is Jesus. So Jesus tells us that John quotes Jesus in, in his gospel and says um, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so when we're learning about the truth of Jesus, we know that there's, there's truth in the gospel, and we know that there's truth as a person. And that's transformative for us as Christians. It's a new way to think of truth, that truth can actually be a person. Um, and for the Christian, that is fundamental to our experience with God. It is fundamental to our experience with one another as well. And we can see that modeled in this letter that John is writing to his fellow Christian friends. Um, he's reminding them that the gospel truth is the core of who they are. It's the core of their faith and their relationships with one another, and it's worthy of being protected. This short letter and the other short letters uh, that we're going to be looking at um, are short because it's a, it's a targeted message from a friend to a friend. And at this point in time, there's a type of teaching that was going around, false teaching called Gnosticism, which we're going to hear, from, hear more about in about two weeks when we get to that section of John. But in essence, Gnosticism is a belief that strips power from sin without having anything to do with Jesus. And it also teaches that to get close to God we have to gain knowledge, that it is, it is an intelligence or knowledge acquisition feat, and it doesn't have anything to do with the person of Jesus. 
And you might have heard um, agnostic, which means we can't know anything about God. Agnosticism means the way to get to God is to know more and more about him. Um, and that is, anti- that is, it is not in line with the truth that John experienced through his friendship with Jesus or through, through the gospel. In this false teaching is happening, and it's happening in the town that this church that he's writing to exists in, and John is, understands the magnitude of, of um, the perversion of the gospel and what that means for his friends. And so, you know, text messaging, FaceTiming didn't occur back then, and so the quickest thing he could do to communicate this worry to his friends and this concern and warn them is write them a letter. And we see that in the letter. You can even hear later on, he says, this, this is it for now, but I'm going to come to you, we're going to talk about this later. And so this is a, a, an example where there's care and concern for the truth and the protection of the gospel for his friends, and he's doing the best that he can, the quickest, he's responding the quickest way that he can and by writing this short little letter that will get to them quickly. Okay? And if we look at it today, we can learn the same message that he was communicating to his friends. So this is, that's the John who's writing this. <clears throat> he's writing to um, uh, the elect lady and her children, and there's, the jury's kind of out on whether he's writing to a specific woman. Um, there are some, some commentators give examples of women that would be friends and consider respectable um, leaders within one of the local churches that John helped to found. Uh, and there's other commentaries that think, no, it's, it's probably just um, a, female, a, a female version of a word that refers to the congregation as a whole, kind of how we could call the church the bride of Christ. Um, and so you can find commentators who, who think it's a specific person in her children or commentators who think that it's, it's probably just speaking to the church as a whole. But regardless of whether it's an individual woman and her children uh, who is respected and honored within the church, or if it is the church as a whole, we know that he's writing to multiple people, right? It's either the, this lady and her kids, or it is a, a church. And so it's helpful f- for me as we read through this book of Second John to think of it as a congregation, even though it might not be. And the reason why is because another recipient of this letter is, is you and I in this room today, right? By some divine means, 2,000 years after this letter was written, it's making its way to Mercy House Church on, on this date. And, and God is behind that. And the message that John is trying to communicate to his friends uh, is being communicated to us right now from God through the Holy Spirit. And so it's helpful for me as I read through this to think, that, okay, he's probably writing to the church as a whole. All right? and so that's how I'm going to be progressing through, through the, um, this series that we're in. You know, the other thing that we get from this is that it, it models for us, John's message models for us what Christian friendship looks like. Are there people in your life whom, if you were getting the truth wrong, would stop what they were doing and send you a text message or FaceTime or show up at your door right away? to help kind of correct that thinking, correct that truth. Are there folks in your life who you think would do that? Because there should be, and there needs, to, there needs to be. Do you feel like you would be that person for somebody else? We're seeing a man who lived his whole life and dedicated his whole life towards uh, a relationship with Christ and teaching others about that truth do that for us today. So this models for us what Christian friendship really should look like, and Christian relationships should look like, one that is founded on the truth. Um, I told you that this is, we're in verses one through three, this is actually one sentence, but John uses the word truth four times, and there's things that 
are kind of obvious that stand out to us. One is that there's great affection between John and the recipients of this letter. He loves them. That's, that's clear in there. And the other thing that's kind of obvious for us is that there's an, a truth, the gospel truth plays an important central role in the existence of the Christian. And, and John knows that. Uh, he mentions that word four times here. And I think he's going overboard maybe in the, in the greeting, that first sentence, because it's setting the tone for the rest of his message, which is that there's something out there that is compromising the truth of the gospel. And you have no idea how important that is. Okay, so it's setting the tone for us. And if we look at how he uses the, word, the words, um, two things stand out to me about the truth that he's communicating. One is that truth is something to be known, something we have to learn. And the other is that truth is something that abides inside of us. So what's a synonym for abide? Live, right? To live inside of us. And that, that, could, that can be new. That can be new teaching for somebody. That truth is something to be known, and it is also something that is living and designed to live inside of us. And so, as I'm a high school biology teacher at Northampton High, and when I hear that message that the truth is something to be known, it is something that abides, it makes me think of two things. One is the brain, so to know the gospel is to know it in your head, and to abide is to live inside of you, and that makes me think of the heart. It's like it's this own involuntary muscle that is doing its thing inside of you, unconsciously, you can't control that. But it's kind of like alive in there. And the job of the heart is pretty amazing. Like when I teach anatomy to, to students, the way every single textbook lays it out is it breaks it down into body systems. You learn about the skeletal system and, and the digestive system and the nervous system. And, and I, I, I always teach that the body doesn't care what, what system is, is there. It doesn't organize it into system. Same way as teaching about nature. We teach about protists and fungus and animals and plants, but nature doesn't care what kingdom or species you belong to. It's a big, beautiful mess, and your body is also a big, beautiful mess. So when we tease apart one organ and say that that's responsible for keeping everything alive and everything going, that's not, it's not entirely true, but your heart plays a super important role in your body. And what is most amazing to me about the heart is that it is designed to get blood to every single cell in your body. You're made up of like a trillion cells, and your heart influences every single one of them. None of them can work unless it gets oxygen and nutrients from blood, and unless the blood also takes the, the waste away from those cells. And so your heart is designed to influence every single ounce of who you are. Every thing that is alive in your body is influenced by a healthy, functioning heart. And that's what I think of when I think of the truth as something to be known and to live inside of you. It's something you have to get in your brain, but it is also something that is so central to the core of who you are that it influences every part of your existence, how you think about yourself, how you speak to other people, what you dwell on, what you do with your time. The truth living inside of us is transformative. It starts with knowing it, and then that blossoms into actually living it. Okay? And I think you know, that's what I'm getting from Paul's, from Paul's greeting here, so I just want to unpack that a little bit with you. So how do we know the truth in our brain? Well, someone has to teach it to us. Someone has to, to tell that to us. And that's what happens, that's what Charlie is doing right now downstairs at Sunday school with all those little kids. Every, every Sunday, we practice explaining and teaching the gospel to the kids down there so that they can repeat it and they can answer questions on it. 
And that is central to their identity of, of who they are as created kids from God. When I was a, a kid, I didn't get that. I, we belonged to a church called um, St. John's when I was growing up. I'm from Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Any South Shore people? No? Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and uh, we, we were kind of quasi-members to the church. We went occasionally on Sunday. We went for every, you know, you know Easter and, and Christmas holiday for sure. And we went through Sunday, not Sunday school, it's called CCD, where we were. But um, the, the church did a great job teaching us about the wonder of God and the mystery of God. And I, I feel like I got that at a, at a young age, that I was in awe of God and what he could create and do and that he was this powerful, um, beautiful being. I did a great job teaching that. But I, somehow I missed out on the gospel, being able to, you know, I graduated Sunday or CCD, you know, moving on as a junior in high school, and I, I, I don't think I could have spelled out what the gospel meant, what that truth actually was, until I went to a youth group that my friend Kim invited me to. And the leaders of that youth group were, were DJ and, and Pam, and they were about probably 30 years old, and they lived in a a sweet condo, and they had some high school students come over on Thursday nights, and they, they knew the gospel. They knew how to communicate it. And so on Thursday nights, they would, we would do a goofy little game or something, and they would, they would do some kind of Bible study lesson that was always centered on the gospel of grace. Um, and through that relationship with them and the, and the others in the youth group and, and getting an idea of what healthy relationship looked like in practicing week after week, um, you know, by the end of my high school career, I, I knew what the gospel was. And it made sense to me in my brain. And I think a lot of us experienced the coming to faith and understanding that gospel, making it true for you. I think we experienced that on like a continuum. For, so for some of us, we can like say the exact moment where we were like, yes, that is what I believe. And for other of us, it's, it's more of a blossoming in our faith. Um, and I, at some point during my senior year of high school, I blossomed to the point where I Things, it was like puzzle pieces fitting into place. Okay, I used to wonder like who I was and, and, and how I was with God and how he interacted or what he thought about me. And I remember being a kid laying in bed and wondering, like, what happens when you die? Like, what, where am I going to go? Like, and at, just through learning about the truth of what Christ did on the cross and the gospel for me made sense. It, it made me think, oh, God has a plan. And I'm, I'm part of that plan, and I get it, and that makes sense to me. It was like somebody gave me the words to um, kind of define who I was in light of who God is. And at, at that point, I, I would say that I was under the gospel of grace, that I was defining myself as a forgiven son. You know, the Bible says that we uh, are, are created in the image of God, who is holy, but, and we're created as created being designed to interact with our creator. But at some point, we make the decision that we don't need our creator. We don't need to interact with God. We don't need him. And at that point, sin enters the picture, and we are no longer connected to him. We're actually considered enemies of God. And that's bad news. It's bad news for a creation that was created to be in communion with its spiritual creator, and it's bad news for God, who's a dad who loves his kids. It's bad news. But there's good news of the gospel, which is that because God loves us so much, he created a plan to address the problem. And the plan was an expensive one. It was that he humbled himself to come to earth 
in the form of Jesus, a human, and live a sinless life. You know, everything that Jesus did and said and thought and ate are the exact same things that God would do and think and eat because Jesus was God. He lived a sinless life. And the price of sin is death. And because God was holy and Jesus lived a holy life, his death actually is the only human life that was would ever be powerful enough and holy enough to actually fix the sin problem of death. And so Jesus was crucified um, on a cross for our sins. And because of that, faith in him and acknowledging the price that he paid allows us to be viewed as holy instead of enemies. And that holiness allows us to be in communion with God, our creator. That is the gospel truth that was communicated to me as an 18-year-old kid in high school. It was a plan that made sense in my brain, and I would identify myself as a child of God at that point. You pull out my license, it would say my name on it, I'm a forgiven son of God. Um, And that is knowing the truth. We need people to communicate that to us, we need people to teach that to us. And that's what John, that's what, what John did with his life. He communicated that truth to people in a way so that you could speak it and understand it and make sense in your brain. But that's not where it ends. Truth is not just something that we keep into our brains. It's also something that is abiding and living in our, our hearts. And that did not happen for me in high school. Even though I would consider myself you know, a Christian, a forgiven son of God, and even on days when I didn't feel like that, I knew that I was. That's knowing it in your brain. But it hadn't infiltrated every ounce of who I was yet. That did not happen until I came to this church as a sophomore in college, a freshman. I came, I think, my last semester, my freshman year. And I would come here, and I would hear the gospel preached every Sunday, and then I would feel horrible afterwards. Because I kind of felt like, like, I can never live up to this, like, standard. And it wasn't, you know, I knew that there was grace. It wasn't behavior-based. But I felt like, wow, these guys, everyone in this room, they get it. And, and I am just still struggling with these same things. And I'm still super self-conscious about myself. I'm, I think about myself all the time. And usually it's a, a self-doubt. Um, I was constantly, like, replaying social interactions in my brain and, like, beating myself up for saying things I shouldn't have said. And why did I say that? And then I knew, and so I would leave on Sundays with this really heavy heart. I kind of felt like God allowed me in his family as an adoptive son, and he, he kind of tolerated me there out of parental obligation. Um, so I was part of his family, but he definitely wasn't happy with where I was or how, how slowly I was growing or maturing. And it was not until I started forming relationships with other people who knew the gospel in their brain they knew the truth in their brain, and they knew it in their heart that I started to recognize what it means to actually have the truth abiding in you in a way that it impacts the totality of who you are. You know, Lois was, was part of that story, and so is Cindy back there. And these were like true friendships with people who got it. They get it. And so I could see joy in them. I could see um, hardship in them, and I could see the the truth living in them. I also saw that they both studied their Bible, which was not something that I did. And surprisingly enough, if we expect the truth to be living in our hearts, we need to be reading the truth. Believe it or not. I didn't know that. And once I found out, it was hard to be disciplined in that. 
until I got into friendships with people who that became the norm for our friendship. Um, I remember one Sunday after service, I, you know, I got to the point where I'd sit in service and then I would just leave after because I felt so heavy-hearted. And I knew if I walked past Lois, she was going to invite me to go play volleyball and go to Bueno with everybody else at, at, at Mercy House, and I would just kind of avoid it. And I went home that summer after my freshman year, and I, I did great in school. I got great grades. Um, and I remember thinking, like, okay, college is, is 25% done. I've got 75% more to go, and I feel like I wasted that whole year. I feel like 25% of this experience has, has gone away. And I was trying to unpack that. Like, why do I feel like I wasted a whole year? I did pretty good. I made friends. Um, and it was because I hadn't grown at all spiritually. I, there was, there was no, I didn't know anything more about who Jesus was or who I was or the Bible in May than I knew in September walking in there. And I, I thought, I got three years left. There's something special about this time in college. There's something special about this church. I got three years left here, and I'm going to jump in. And it took some humility to do that. But in September when I came back, at the end of the service, there were small groups available. You could sign up on a small group. And I had it. And uh, by the way, I, I grew up in a church where Bible study was not common. And I grew up in a very New Englandy, sarcastic family. And if the word, the term Bible study was so um, hokey that I, I like couldn't even tell family or friends that I was doing this Bible study. I would explain what I was doing with the church and part of this group that reads the Bible, but I couldn't even use the term Bible study. That's how like, hard it was for me to, to like, get into this culture. And, but I was, with a shaking hand, I signed my name on the sign-up sheet. And we met that next week at the Crumrise apartment in Amherst where they, where they were in, in their living room. And we broke up into to two groups. And my group went with Robert, and there were probably 12 guys, and there were maybe 10 or 12 girls. Well, they're probably like 25 girls with Melanie. Um, and Robert just said, hey, just so say your name. None of us really knew each other. Say your name and tell us why you're here. And nobody raised their hand to go first. He said, do I have a volunteer to go first? No one raised their hand. And I forced, just out of discipline, I forced myself to, in obedience, I raised my hand and I said, my name, <laughs> I said, my name is Dan, I'm a Christian, and I don't know anything about the Bible, and that's why I'm here. It was like an AA meeting. Like, <laughs> and... Um, and he, they were like, great, thanks. And we got into this Bible group, and in one of the books we were reading, the, the workbook was called Be Transformed. And it was an entire, like, 12-week study on, um, on basically recognizing the gospel as the, the truth, as the foundation of who you are. And it was based on Romans 12, 2, which is do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that kind of became like a life verse for me. It was the first Bible verse that I ever memorized. Um, the second one was the next semester, James, which, uh, oh gosh, I think I've forgotten it. James 1.5 or 5.1, but confess your sins to one another so that you will be healed. And when we studied James, we did that read, read, read method where we would read it out loud, we'd go back and read to whatever we were studying, and then we'd read it out loud again. So each night we're reading these verses like three times out loud, multiple times, um, you know, every day of the week. And for the first time I started getting truth like written on my heart and in, and in my brain. And I started experience through relationships here, unconditional relationships from people who also knew the truth of the gospel in their brain and their heart, what it actually looked like. And after that year, my sophomore year, 
of kind of doing that hard work, being in the Word and being with French friends, having Christian friendships who knew the truth and could pinpoint things in me and highlight things in me that God had placed in me, all of a sudden, the truth started to become living in my heart. And it started to impact how I thought about myself. And it impacted the words that came out of my mouth. It impacted how I used my time, how I spoke to my roommates, uh, what I valued. And I think that's what John is, is getting at here. I remember one night I was laying in my bed and I thought, wow, I haven't really thought, I haven't really put myself down like mentally in a long time. And I was, I'm like, is this what it's supposed to feel? Is this what like security in your identity is supposed to feel like? Like I'm not second guessing everything I say. I'm just kind of, is this joy? Is that what I have right now? Um, and I, you know, I had an apartment in Rolling Green. I remember it was like two in the morning. I was thinking this, and there was a, a you know, a sin that I was like holding on to that I was really kind of embarrassed about and not willing to surrender or talk about. And I, I'm not kidding. I got excited to be able to confess that to somebody the next day. There was no shame there. It was an excitement to re- reveal this part of who I was to God's power with the friends that he had put in my life. And that, that was transformation. That was a transformation happened in my brain that became true in my heart and that impacted my identity. And that, that changed the course of, of my life. To experience healing from sin um, that brought shame and, and confusion. But to lay that before God and have friends and family in this community who also knew truth, to be able to speak truth into me. Um, that, that changes who we are. That's, that's, that's life-forming. And that is the truth that we have as Christians. It is the truth that John is trying to protect his friends from. Okay, there's false teaching going around that says, you know what? Jesus doesn't have any part of getting close to God. There's false teaching around that says, sin is just ignorance. It does it, doesn't mean anything. Don't, don't get down on yourself about it, right? And if we entertain those lies, then what we're sacrificing is the truth that can abide in us and transform our lives. John understands that the close relationship, that close friendship he had person to person with Jesus, being able to walk next to him and be rebuked by him and corrected by him in witnessing his godliness, that is a friendship and a relationship that is the goal, and so having friends and family and relationships where people know the truth in their brain and know it in their heart is paramount to the Christian experience. It is how God creates an environment in our lives where he can speak to us, where he, the Holy Spirit can access us and transform us. And so that's what, that's what John is doing in this, this one sentence, this greeting. He is communicating the importance of knowing the truth in your brain. How do you communicate the gospel? How can you recite that to yourself? But also knowing it in a a way that is going to infiltrate every cell of your body and bring you in in a relationship of closer and closer intimacy with God as a friend and as a savior. There's a few ways that we make sure that this happens um, at Mercy House. And one of the ways is that we encourage everyone here to be in the Word and to be in, a re- in relationship. And there's sometimes that we can make a framework for those things. You're here right now. We're obviously in the Word. Our Bibles are open. We're reading it. 
But if we're opening it and reading it and that's it, and we come back next week and open and read it and that's it, and come back next week and open and read it and that is it, we're missing out on the truth abiding in us. We have to be in the Word as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we have friends, if you have a, a, someone in this room that you would consider your friend or your family, I'm talking like close, like you talk multiple times a week, close. And you're not sharing truth with one another or asking, what are you reading right now? Or what's God saying to you right now? Then we're missing out on the John type of friendship that we see in Second John here. We're missing out on that with one another. So we've got a framework for studying the Bible on Sundays. And we also, you know, can Megan emails out these awesome weekly updates with reading plans sometimes. There's a framework there, but it also needs to be part of our rhythm of just our existence as Christians. And this sermon series is just a great way to practice that. It's one chapter every Sunday for the summer. And so if you feel like that's a skill that you don't quite have right now, then this is a great series to actually get into that skill and develop that skill. And so think of that friend or family person that you were thinking of when I asked if you had someone in this room. And this is something that you can ask them or remind them or ask them to read with you. But did you read the chapter today? That's something that we can easily do. Okay? And you can do it with one another. The other thing that we encourage people to do is, is be in, in relationship with one another. And that's what that healthy friendship looks like. We have a framework for that too. It's called discipleship groups or, or small groups. Um, where we are actually looking out for one another. Just like John is doing for this church or this lady. Right? We can make a framework for that. But we also have to build on that framework. For some of us, it's a discipline to do that, to actually seek someone out to look out for us or to actually respond to the Holy Spirit with obedience when he's asking us to look out for a friend whose truth might be compromised. We have a friend right now who is, she gets it in her brain. She does not have it in her heart. And the reason we know that is because she's very excited that, that um, she's in a relationship with somebody who is not sharing the truth. And that is a situation where the Holy Spirit encourages us to, to reach out to her and protect her from the truth being compromised. And it's hard, and it's uncomfortable. But that's what love is. That's the love and the friendship that John is showing his, his family right now. So we can provide a framework as a church for that, but it really is the Holy Spirit that we have to be respondent to to experience that in real ways. There's a third way that we protect the gospel of truth here at Mercy House. And that is when we preach every Sunday up here, we do communion every Sunday. We haven't always done that. It used to be a once a month thing. Um, And the staff here at Mercy House decided to do it every Sunday in order to protect and remind and reinforce ourselves of the truth of who Jesus was. So we can get it in our brain, but doing communion really also is another way that we can actually get it in our heart. To do communion, we ask that you recognize it in your brain, that you consider yourself a forgiven son or daughter of Christ under the grace of Jesus Christ's action on the cross, and that gets us up here. But the act of communion reminds us that the truth also abides inside of who we are. It's the core of who we are. And we do that. And one of the ways it, it, it does that for us is because you're physically taking something 
outside and putting it in your body that brings nourishment to you. And so we do this every Sunday. And so in a moment, we're going to practice communion together. And as you go back to your seat uh, to, to be in prayer, I would encourage you to pray, one, that the Holy Spirit would continue to protect and highlight the truth of the gospel at this church, because I think it is taught well here in many ways and modeled well. We pray that the Holy Spirit would continue that at Mercy House. And the second thing I'd like you to pray for is that that truth, if you haven't experienced it in your brain, if the puzzle pieces haven't clicked together yet, then use this time to sit, sit at your table, uh, or sit at your, <laughs> at your chairs. I'm a high school teacher. We have tables. <laughs> sit in your chairs um, and, and pray that God would make those puzzle pieces click, that the, the truth of the gospel would make sense in your brain. And if you've got that and you're joining us for communion, then you should also be praying that the truth of the gospel would be living and abiding in your heart in a way that flourishes and blossoms and infiltrates every cell of your body and informs every part of your life. Because if you haven't experienced that, then you're missing out. Okay? So, I guess brief does refer to the sermon length today. Um, this is where we're going to end it, and I'm going to invite you to come up and communion in a, in a moment um, and then go back to your tables and back to your chairs and have, have a seat and pray. So, so this idea of communion um, was modeled for us by Jesus. Um, and on the night uh, before he was betrayed, um, he sat with his friends, his friends at a table, including John, um, and he took bread and he said, he broke the bread and he took the pieces and handed it around to his friends and he said, all of you, this is my body broken for you. Take this and eat it in remembrance of me. And then after he did that with the bread, he took a cup and he held it up in front of his friends and he said, this is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant. This is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to pray and then invite you to come up and share in communion with me. Father God, we recognize uh, that there is truth in this world and that there is lies in this world. And we thank you that you have revealed the truth of who you are to us. Father, we recognize that that truth um, needs to be communicated. It needs to be taught. And we recognize that once that happens, there's just tremendous transformation uh, and love that is possible when that truth lives inside of our hearts. And as our folks partake in communion, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us of that, that your Holy Spirit would navigate confusion, would navigate um, lies that are existing, and just sink that truth deep into who we are. I pray that if there's anyone in the church right now who feels like they need specific prayer, that they would um, be obedient to the Spirit and just make their way to the back of the church where I'll be back there and there will be others back there waiting to pray for them. We love you, Lord. We recognize you as our dad and Christ as our Savior. And I pray that your blessing on this church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.